Welcome to another installment of the Legal Marketing Studio, the bi-weekly podcast examining best-in-class examples of branding, strategy, content, and technology in legal marketing. Each episode is devoted to a successful initiative, an innovative campaign, a promising technology, or an effective proven strategy for developing new business at law firms, from the largest international firm to the solo attorney. I'm Michael Meyer, the host of the Legal Marketing Studio. In this episode, I'm speaking with Pia Silva of Worst of All Design. Pia is the business, and her partner Steve Westervall is the creative at Worst of All Design, a branding and design agency that helps businesses build badass brands without BS. Worst of All creates badass brands whose braveness, irreverence, and unapologetic messaging gains them the kind of loyal following that can only be earned. With a focus on service businesses, including law firms, Worst of All's brand shrink and brand up processes identify a business's identity and execute a brand strategy based on that identity. What sets them apart is the speed at which they work. Their projects are measured in days rather than weeks or months. Pia, welcome to the Legal Marketing Studio. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this, so let's, uh, yeah. let's get right into it. Uh, so Jean Tang wrote about, uh, worst of all, in her Forbes column back in January. Uh, and she was talking about it and looking at like, your business process and your realization and your sort of reimagining what your business could be. But my takeaway was one small little detail. Uh, where you identify a pain point for your clients, which was that the marketing process, um, that, that companies of all sizes tend to agonize over that process. And it slows everything down, it wastes a lot of time, and they get caught up in it. Uh, and so you've built your process to eliminate that. Uh, could you speak about that pain point a little bit? Yeah, of course. Um it's a pain point that I'm not sure companies are even aware that they have. So I have found over the years working in a more traditional agency model that when clients have a lot of time to think about something that they're not terribly educated in, like the design of a logo or how a website should be organized, they tend to... Um, question themselves a lot and ask for a lot of opinions from a lot of other people who also don't know a lot about logos and websites. And any creative uh, will understand what I'm talking about and how frustrating it can be for the agency itself. Because, you know, when you're hired as an expert to do your craft and then, uh, and then somebody outside is questioning everything, it tends to water the work down. And ultimately, that is a disservice to the client themselves. Because when we get hired, I want to give them the best thing that I can to make their business successful. So our process was developed, um, I think a byproduct of, of how we organize our process is that it helps clients get out of their own way and allows them to put the trust in the people who actually do this every single day and know how to do it in a way that creates a successful business, and that's my number one goal. Uh, so I want to start start at the beginning of the process, uh, and something on your website that I think is r different than a lot of branding companies uh, is that you're very upfront about what a brand drink or a brand up entails. You're very specific about what those include, and you're very specific about what the price is for your services. Um, so I was wondering if you could you know, speak to that transparency a little bit and how that makes things simpler for your clients in the, in the hiring process. You know, how, you know, cause you're starting off right from the beginning. 
So when a client is uh, looking at our company and comparing it to other companies, usually how most companies in our industry operate is that they ask, well, what are all the things that you want? And then they go back and they write a proposal and they put all those detailed deliverables in and give a price. And um, our process has been productized in a way that I'm very clear on the website, as you mentioned, that we have a two-step process. And step one is the brand shrink. And we say that it costs six fifty on the site. And I just tell everyone, I mean, it really only takes a 15-minute phone call with anyone because as soon as I figure out that they are an ideal client for me and are squarely in our niche, which is one to three person service businesses, um, I tell them, look, the first step is a brand shrink. And once we do the brand shrink, I can then tell you whether we can execute everything you need in a one, two, or three-day brand up. It's a very simple process, and I'll, I'll usually give them an option, a one or a two-day, depending on the deliverables, um, but it just takes a lot of the decision-making out of their process, and I think I have found that the clients that work best with us feel a sense of relief because now you know I'm kind of taking control of it for them. I'm not going to ask them, well, tell me what you need, and I'll tell you how much it costs. I'm going to tell them tell me what you're trying to do and I'll write up a, a brief on what I think you need and I'll tell you how long it's going to take me to do it. So I find that clients just feel, um, yeah, a sense of relief that it's kind of being taken care of by somebody who knows what they're doing. At least that's what I'm trying to instill in them. <laughs> you guys have a very, very specific target kind of client. Right. Uh, you've got a very specific sort of brand of your own, mm -hmm. not every client's right for you. Right, definitely um, not. So for a client that's not right for mm -hmm. you, are there any lessons from your process that can be applied to any sort of hiring decision or, or purchasing decision um, on the client end rather than on your end? Mm -hmm. So if a firm of, say, 50 attorneys is going right. through this process, what can they do to make that process more efficient on their purchasing end? Right. Um, Gosh, I'm not sure if I'm the best person to speak to that um, because of because I haven't really worked in those kinds of companies. Uh, I would say one one thing I'm always looking for when I'm hiring, so I guess it would be the same part applicable, uh, is I'm looking for a company that is asking me um, bigger picture questions first and are asking a lot of questions. Anybody that I'm looking to hire that is immediately telling me what needs to be done without asking what I'm trying to accomplish or asking about the details of my business in, in different ways is usually just prescribing something that works or that they just do every single time. And, you know, it might sound paradoxical because I have such a clear and specific thing and I say that's the only thing we do, but within that it is completely customized for each client and I could never tell them what I would do for them until I did the brand shrink, which is basically me understanding everything about their business and their goals and often their life goals too because that's all important for building a really successful brand and website so that would be my advice make sure you find an agency that is truly looking at the whole picture and has expertise and able to look at your entire business and not just building a website for example based on your specifications and know your limits. I mean, if you're, if a client is ask, if a agency is asking you what website pages do you want, they're not a good agency for you because it means that they're looking to you, somebody who doesn't build websites, to tell them what pages they need on their website. And I think that that um, that shows a level lack of expertise. 
so you started talking about your branching. Could you talk about a bit about what goes into the branching? What are the kinds of things that you want to find out about a, a client, about, about their business? You know, when clients come to you, what do they need to have in mind? What kind of questions are you going to ask them? Um, well, you know, we start by asking them why they came to us, you know, what challenges are they dealing with? What, why now, as opposed to six months from now or six months previously, um, we ask them about why they started their business in the first place. Um, what success means to them. Uh, if we do our job well, what are you going to have in the next year or however many years that you'll know that this was successful? Um, we'll ask them, uh, who their favorite client is. I mean, I like to get really deep about people that they've worked with in the past that they loved and what is it about that client that they loved um, because I think a successful business and brand is one that is attracting tons of those ideal clients and isn't working with anybody else. Uh, so in doing that, who should be in the room? You know, who are the decision makers that are really important either in the process of figuring out what the that company's brand is but also, you know, in terms of people that you might not think should be in the room, uh, but also who should be there in terms of making decisions? For our process? Yeah, well, your process or more or broadly. Um, for our process, we ask that all the decision makers are in the room. We don't want anybody whose um, opinions are important not involved in the process because that just leads to, you can imagine, uh, <laughs> problems down the road potentially. Um, but that's also why we only work with one to three person companies. Now, some of our clients may have 30 employees, but there's only one to three decision makers. So we've been very specific about that because um, we find that our work can be executed at the highest level when there are three or fewer um, personalities in the room. Uh, if you're a bigger company, I mean, I would say it's probably best to designate uh, the people that you feel understand the company the most and the goals and the business goals and give them carte blanche to make those decisions. I find that the more people that are in the room, the more watered down and the less successful any creative project will be. So best to not have 50 partners working on giving feedback on a website, best to designate it to one to three people. Might be hard to do, but that would be my recommendation. You'll, you'll all sleep better, I promise. So could you describe, uh, you know, um, I mean, that's sort of the, the branching process, just your own sort of a, your overarching perspective on, on branding and, you know, what that brand should be and then how, you, how, a, client should, uh, how a company should be expressing that brand. Um, okay, so, wait, there's like three questions in there. There are. <laughs> uh, what, how, I, how we approach branding. How you approach how branding. Approach Let's start branding. there. Okay. What I'm always looking for is what is the entry point for a company where they can really own a niche. So I want every one of my clients to leave truly understanding and expressing something that is super clear and a space where um, the more they build their brand equity in it, the harder it will be for anybody to compete with them. Now, right off the back, if you have a niche, you're already separating yourself from the generalists. But if you can then instead, or if, in, then you can add on top of that, um, building your voice and building your very um, unique position and point of view, you can create a foundation for your brand that there are no competitors in and people will 
in turn, be willing to pay a premium price for your service. And that's how I define a badass brand, one that commands a premium price and still wins the business because there are no competitors. Right. So, so in, a, in a very traditional industry like legal, where marketing is fairly, uh, let's be honest, a bit stodgy, mm -hmm. um, how can firms, uh, I mean, smaller firms are going to be a little bit more free to do this. Uh, in general, but how do they get past the fear of being sort of too risque? Okay, so when I say badass, <laughs> when I say different, it doesn't necessarily mean risque. It means, and you know, for a lot of our clients, and we work with surprising number of financial firms and law firms, um, you know, we're worst of all design, but we attract lawyers, financial advisors who just want to stand out and they believe that hiring us will allow them to do that. Now that doesn't mean that they want to be, you know, some crazy looking law firm. It just means that they need an outside perspective. That's not going to just give them the templated lawyer, uh, website that everybody else has. So, um, you know, often it has to do with being specific and specializing. I mean, I know a, lo a lot of law firms will specialize. Um, but I think it's also about just being really clear about what you're known for. So again, like large law firms is not my space, but when I think about that landscape, there are certain law firms that are, that have a, an appeal of white glove, you know, very high end. And you can build that reputation through branding and through a lot of the things that you do. And just even really identifying and deciding that you are the most expensive, the fanciest white glove firm and, and deciding that that's what your brand is all about, well now you that should influence every decision you make. So down to the uh, stock of paper that every client feels, down to the fact that there cannot be a chip of paint when people walk into your office. I mean, you know, if you're going to be the most expensive, then, then no stone is left unturned. Now, those are um, expenses that a law firm might want to cut corners for, but if you agree that you are the most expensive, most premier, then you start to realize that you can't cut those corners. And likewise, you might be more of the like, you know, mafia style. Like, I mean, we've had clients like that, just more straight talking and, and that's your personality. And so then, you know, the, the language on your website can reflect that. Um, so it doesn't have to be that it's so in your face. It just has to be, uh, whatever it is, just own it and go all the way with it in everything that you do. I mean, I, I think that speaks to a kind of authenticity. Yes. Um, so how, how oh. do you... What? Okay. Yeah. No, no. So I was going to say that I think that speaks to a kind of authenticity. Um, but you're hedging on that, which I think is an interesting hedge. Yeah. So can you explain yeah. why you're hesitant to say that that's authenticity. Absolutely. Okay. So, um, here's my opinion on authenticity. Uh, the decision of what kind of firm you want to be, that, sh that should stem from a very authentic place. Um, but to come across as very authentic requires you to embrace that idea and put it very extremely in all of aspects of your business. So could, could you be more specific? I, I'm just, yeah. it's not coming to my mind what that might sure, mean. Sure, sure, yeah. Well, hard to explain. Um, 
so kind of like back to my my white glove example. So you might be um, a group of lawyers who really are authentically, you know, creme de la creme in terms of the kind of service you deliver and, um, you know, how you do business and, and the kind of companies that you work for and you do well with. Um, that is authentic to you. But it might not be in your nature to have the office painted every year and to buy the most expensive furniture and to wear really you know, dressed to the nines, tailored suits, that might not be in your nature. And therefore, it would seem like it would be inauthentic for you to do that, but to come across as authentically this very white glove, high-end law firm, you, it, I believe it would require you to do all of those other things that might not be the things you would naturally do, but will give the experience of authenticity that this is not, um, that this, this law firm really is that white glove high-end firm. So even though you might authentically be as a worker, as a as an individual, as an individual or as, as an individual lawyer, um, the creme de la creme, as I said, uh, if your suit's a little tattered, it's going to be a dissonance experience. It's going to be a dissonant experience for the client. And that doesn't come across as authentic. So that's why I hedge it, because all of us being authentically ourselves, we are multifaceted people. We have lots of elements of ourselves, and that's what branding is. Branding takes the pe the authentic piece of you and puts it on a billboard and makes it really extreme in every element of the business. So some of these smaller firm, the smaller firms that you're working with, one to three key decision makers in them. Um, there's a lot of you know. There's the overarching firm brand. Um, but all of those individual attorneys are implementing it on an individual level. You know, how do you kind of fit or allow for some individual personality within the brand? Within the firm's brand. Within the firm's brand, yes. Um, well, first I would say to have a really uh, strong firm brand, you would want to be very clear on what your company firm goals and and core values are and personality and you would hire lawyers that fit that i mean that's how businesses are run you know you have a very set specific um, list of core values and you hire people who embody those values so right off the bat if you have people that are all over the place well that's just not going to go for a very strong um, brand identity but but I would say that within a big law firm, you know, it's it's definitely um, beneficial for you as an individual lawyer to brand yourself and make a name for yourself and be known as something. And that comes down more to personal branding. And that's not necessarily how you operate on your website because you're going to be on the company law firm website. But um, I know people in, in law and in other industries where they just have a really clear sense of who they are and they they present it in everything that they do so you know uh i mean you wouldn't want to make this up but i i know a lawyer who you know he just wears really crazy socks and ties all the time now that's like a very superficial version of what i'm talking about but it's a good example that guy just every time you see him you remember it you know right. he's got a little bit of per he's got a big personality and he shows it and by doing that really consistently he's just more memorable than your any other regular lawyer in that space um, so those are just little ways that you can do that I really like when people do that using how they talk about their 
firm, how they talk about their work. I mean, if you can really hone your voice, um, then you can build your, your personal brand like that as well. So I guess one thing that's probably magnified, um, and I'm taking, this is 180 degrees, we're going off on a total uh, okay. non sequitur. Do my best. Right. Um, <laughs> when you're taking this process and making it so rapid, uh, what are some of the, I imagine that that amplifies any of the obstacles in the process. Um, how do you, you know, what are some of the obstacles that, that comes up in the process that, that, you're, that you found ways to get past? Um, okay, so actually it doesn't really amplify them as much as eliminate the obstacles. So, um, you know, there's a lot of buy-in leading up to the actual brand update where we design and build the entire brand and the website um, that include, you know, there's an initial buy-in because our clients understand how our process works and they understand that they are foregoing multiple months of feedback in order to get something in a very t tight and short amount of time and very little time on their part as well. Um, they're also agreeing to the fact that they like our work and they trust us and they trust us to know what we're doing. Um, we do the brand shrink and after we do this, it's an hour and a half interview, you know, I told you the questions before, we get, we get to the bottom of what their business is all about. And then about a week later, I provide them with a uh, brand shrink brief that is both a summary of the things that we heard from them as being the most important points, um, what they're trying to accomplish, and our recommendations for the best brand strategy to get them there, as well as a list of the deliverables that we believe that they need, which may or may not be the list of deliverables that they told us they need. Um, and then they have an opportunity to give feedback on that, but I tell them when I send it, I say I need whatever feedback you have, I need to know, because this brief is what we are basing all of the work we do on. So this brief needs to be, we need to both be in complete agreement on it. Um, and what that does is when people come in for the brand up, or we do a lot of them over uh, Skype, when we show them the work in the, the beginning of the day, uh, it's all about this is the work based on our expertise that will get you that goal that we all agreed you had. And because there's so much buy-in on those parts, um, you know, knock on wood, I mean, I've had really, I've had really great experiences with clients that usually the reaction is, oh, wow, that's not exactly what I was expecting and it's awesome and that can be my brand. And I say yes. So, you know, that's, that's the experience I'm always trying to create for them. Like, that is not what I pictured necessarily and it's better. Better's always good. Yeah. Yeah. Better's better. <laughs> So I guess I was hoping that you would have a, um, you know, a client success story you could talk about. Some, uh, you know, someone that came in uh, and had that experience where they sort of had something in their mind, but through the process they came up with something better, and that you know how that brand has worked for them, how they've, how it's worked in their continued implementation of it. Sure. Um, so, one client comes to mind. Um, it's a company called Stash Wealth. So they are a financial. Uh, wealth management firm. Uh, they came to us, actually their name was Moderna Capital when they came to us and um, yeah, horrible name. So uh, they came to us after they were, had been in business for a year. They're ex-Merrill Lynch advisors. So they had left Merrill Lynch. They wanted to start their own firm. They wanted to help 20 and 30 somethings with wealth management, an underserved market in the wealth management community. And um, 
when they came to us, they had yet to sign a client because they were using tactics that they used at Merrill Lynch because they, they had been trying to use the same tactics they used at Merrill Lynch to close clients with much less money in a different generation. So when we looked at their website, it was all very nice. Like they had a lot of style. It just looked like a version of a wealth management company that I'd already seen. And even though the copy said somewhat uh, more skewed towards the younger generation, it still just looked like a, I don't know. It just, it, it wasn't truly embracing what they were really trying to do. So among the things that we did for them, um, you know, there, we renamed them stash wealth. Um, we developed a content marketing campaign called financial cliff notes because our generation 20 and 30 somethings, we don't want to read long, boring articles. We want to read fun, punchy articles, i.e. financial cliff notes. Um, they started by doing marketing happy hours with craft beer, just giving education and really just stopped using the word financial advisor, financial management, any of that. Um, we productized their service. So uh, we built something called a stash plan. It's a um, it's actually a little bit like our brand shrink. The deliverables very different, but um, basically they interview the client about everything uh, on their budget, their cash flow, their goals in life, their their dreams, what do they want, and then they put together their financial plan um, very in depth. Show them how that they believe they should um, invest and how much they should be saving in order to achieve all of those goals, and. What they did was by productizing that, they made something tangible that people could buy and then and then turn into wealth management clients. Now, when they first when I first told them to do this, they were very skeptical because they did the numbers and they said, We can't make the kind of money we're trying to make selling these stash plans. And I said, You guys aren't getting it. The stash plans are just you getting paid to work with leads. They will convert into wealth management clients because you have demonstrated a lot of value for them. And instead of you whining and dining clients trying to convince them to hand over their assets, they're going to pay you to demonstrate your value. And then they're going to ask, how do I continue to work with you? And um, it took about a year, but that's precisely what happened. So now, you know, she told me a couple, like last week, second month in a row, they've sold over $20,000 worth of stash plans and that's not their ongoing clients. So that's just the products themselves and then 75% of those people turn into wealth management clients. So they're onboarding about 18 wealth management clients a month. And all of that is to say that we were implementing branding and marketing tactics that small businesses use instead of copying what financial firms do for this different generation. You just have to think about who your target is and how they want to be approached and how they buy and how they think. And uh, I love this story because now I have heard, um, I had an, a, another colleague that saw that and said, well, yeah, of course they're doing well. Nobody does what they do. <laughs> and I said, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so you mentioned uh, our generation buying differently and shopping differently. Uh, you know, this is something that, again, law firms are very traditional industry, mm -hmm. uh, worried about it, but not willing necessarily to, um, to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, what are some of those differences? And, and it might not even be necessarily a generational gap, so much as a mindset gap mm-hmm. um, in the digital world where now information is so accessible and people are going to do the research and they're not necessarily going to, you know, make one phone call and that's it. They're going to go look for all this information out there. Um, how does that, you know, does that mindset gap or that generational gap play out for a lot of your clients that you see? I would say that the law industry is more antiquated than most. <laughs> so I wouldn't say, I mean, I, I think it depends on the client because some, not all of our clients are going after 20 and 30 somethings. Um, a lot of our clients are going after entrepreneurs. Um, a lot of our clients are going after um, parents. So it does depend. It's more about, well, who are you going after? And let's be clear about how they uh how they like to receive information, how they digest it. Um, specifically for the 20 and 30 something generation as it relates to law firms and how they can access, uh, access those, that uh, clientele. I would say that it's a huge opportunity that is going to get scooped up by younger people if older firms don't acknowledge it and um, adjust to it. So some of those things are merely that our generation is used to information being easy to find, easy to read, um, written in a way that is like colloquial often. Like we don't want to read long, boring um, about us pages that are eight paragraphs long and talk about the founding partners in 1887. Like that's not, um, that's not going to get us to call. What we do like is um, things that are easy to understand. I've, I have found this Stash Wealth client is a good example of it. I have found that being able to buy things in small doses at first and building trust that way is hugely beneficial for our generation. We don't want to marry you. We want to date you for a while before we have enough trust to actually hire you. Um, and personally, as a buyer, I like to hire people that are experts at what they do. So um, again, I think because our generation is very used to finding information on the web that is exactly what we want because Google has allowed, I mean, the web has allowed anybody and everyone to be their own business, which means that businesses have become very niche. So I would never hire a generalist lawyer to handle my you know, real estate investment when I know that I want to find a real estate lawyer. So um, that niche can be brought down even smaller. I mean, you could be the Brooklyn real estate lawyer and do very, very well. Um, and in our generation anyway. Two more quick questions. Sure. On that. Uh, so the first one is you're really looking at thin slicing what the the market is um, and who those people are going to reach, which wor- which for a small firm, you know, one to three partners, uh, it's gonna, and especially w- with the digital uh, access that, that most, most are taking advantage of, um, they can really compete with larger firms, right? I mean, they, as a small firm can be very agile. They can really pivot and really focus on something super specific. I guess that was just me clarifying one thing you were saying. Um, but, it, you know, is that a, a threat for larger firms that are general firms or that have multiple practice groups? or even a, a small firm, three partners, but that might have two practice groups. Is that a threat for the bigger firms? Or an opportunity for the smaller firms? I definitely see it as an opportunity for the smaller firms. Um, I don't, I, it's not my 
world of expertise, whether it's a threat, I would say that, you know, if the trend continues as our generation ages and the younger generation is probably going to even expect more specific um, companies that they can hire. The reason it would be a threat would be that those larger law firms would dry up their clients and they would, and the smaller firms that were super specific would grow with time and, and overtake their clients I guess maybe yeah no I don't know but I, I do know that here's the thing here's how I like to look at it and this is can I talk about the smaller firms yeah smaller. talk about small firms yeah yeah so here's how I see it and this is why I always start with the question like what are you trying to accomplish like what does success look like to you because more often than not small especially small firms small businesses they want to make a certain amount of money a good amount of money and they want to have like freedom and time and that's most of our clients that's what they're looking for and this kind of narrow slicing, becoming highly expert in something, becoming known for it, means that there are, you'll start to attract an endless amount of clients who are ready and excited and willing to pay you and hire only you because nobody else competes with you to do a specific job. And when you can get into that situation, you are able to make a lot of money and have a lot of freedom. So, I mean, I see that as the way that businesses are going in general. So that might be a threat as well. <laughs> so I want to close with just last question. Um, in the design process, right? Because I really think this is with most, how you've compacted the process into such a short time frame. Um, what are the key takeaways for law firms in terms of how can they make this process as efficient as possible um, on their end? Mm -hmm. um, what do they need to know going in? And then what can they do in that process to eliminate obstacles? Just maybe three key takeaways. Um, okay. Key takeaway number one, put one to three people in charge of the project and give them the authority to make the decisions. And make sure that they really understand what the overall objectives of the firm are. And get everybody else out of the, get all the other cooks out of the kitchen because it's only going to cause headache. Number two Find a firm that is expert at what they do and is willing to and interested in looking at the overall objectives and then is going to create the design based on those objectives and is not going to be the design hands to make whatever you think it should be. Because the reason you're doing any of this design and website work is for a business objective, not because you want a pretty website. That's silly. And the third would be if you hire a company and you, tr and you do your due diligence and you see that their work is good and that they've had a good track record and you like what they do, then don't ask your husband or your wife for their advice and trust the process and let them do their job. Because if you don't, then you want run the risk of spending a lot of money for somebody's expertise that you don't end up getting because you ruined the project <laughs> sounds spoken like a true designer but I really I mean it's uh, when I hire people I even if I don't quite like what they're doing I once I've hired them and I believe in them I I want them to do their thing because I believe that they know more about this than I do and that's why I hired them and that's important uh 
Well, I want to, Pia, I want to thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Legal Marketing Studio podcast. Uh, the Legal, Legal Marketing Studio is a production of Picture More Business. The theme music was composed by Ryan Knock of Knock It Out Music. Uh, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe. The Legal Marketing Studio can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. Extended content, including photographs and links, can be found on our website, legalmarketing.studio. And if you know someone who should appear on the Legal Marketing Studio, please reach out to producer at legalmarketing.studio or via the contact page on our website, legalmarketing.studio. Pia, thanks so much. Thank you so much, Mike.